Hey, turn to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. You know, most people know, Mike mentioned him this morning, many people know who Martin Lloyd-Jones is. If I said the name Martin Lloyd-Jones, that name is very familiar to us. You may know the story. He was a medical doctor um, at first. And then the Lord led him into the ministry, and so he became a a pastor. Uh, In fact, he pastored Westminster Chapel in London, and uh, his name is very familiar to us. However, there is another name in connection with all this that's not so familiar to us, which is an absolute shame, quite honestly. How many of you have ever heard the name G. Campbell Morgan? Okay, some have heard that name. Uh, many have not. I've talked to many people about this, and they said, well, I don't know who you're talking about. Uh, Lloyd-Jones was, a, was an assistant pastor to G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan was the pastor previous to Lloyd-Jones at that, at that church. And uh, he was known in his time as the Prince of Expositors. Did you know that? In fact, he, had, he made it his practice. <clears throat> he would preach through books of the Bible. And whether it was Isaiah or whether it was Matthew or whatever book, he made it his practice to read through the book 40 to 50 times uh, before he even studied it. Yeah, he would read through, for example, in one sitting today, he would read through that book. Maybe the next day he'd read through it again. He did this 40, 50 days in a row, I'm assuming that's how he did it. And I know he did it in one sitting at a time to get the context in his head. Then he would begin to study it in order to teach it. He did one thing. He did one thing only. He preached the word. That's what he did. That's, what he, that's the only thing he cared about. He cared about nothing else. What I've read, he wasn't eloquent. He was not a charismatic speaker. He did not have an impressive, impressive physical appearance. He was very thin, lanky, and all that. He was not academically trained. In fact, listen to this. When he, first, he preached his first trial sermon, it was said of him, he shows no promise in being a preacher at all. Yet, over his lifetimes, thousands of people came to hear. In fact, they had the famous, what's now, what now, well, it's not famous now. Nobody even knows about it. They had a Friday night Bible study they started in England, which 2,000 people would show up to every Friday night. Can you imagine that now happening? You know, thousands came to hear him because they knew that he was only going to do one thing, preach the word as accurately as possible and exalt Christ, and that's what he did. And they came to hear that. The greatest testimony of all may have come from his daughter-in-law, Morgan's daughter-in-law, Jill Morgan, who wrote a book I read it years ago called A Man of the Word, The Life of G. Campbell Morgan. I remember that title sticking in my mind, A Man of the Word, and I thought, man, a man of the word, that's what I want to be, a man of the word. And uh, those who knew him well characterized him that way. I wonder, I wonder how, if, they could, if people could write a biography of your life, when it's all said and done, people are always already looking down at their seats, how would they characterize us? And what kind of a title would they put out there that would say it all in a title, this, was, this person was like this? Would they characterize us as people of the word? Is that how they would do it or not? You know, I want, that's what we want to talk about tonight, being a man or woman or young person of the word, and we want to talk about having our lives governed by the Bible. Now, we're going to be in chapter 7 of Ezra tonight, but in the bigger picture, we need to see chapter 7 and 8. We've already come through the first six chapters of Ezra. We want to see chapter 7 and 8 together, and what ties them together are a couple of concepts. One is a physical, the physical background, and another is a spiritual theme of these chapters. Now, as to the background of chapter 7 and 8, it has to do with a journey. 
that will be taken from Babylon, or we could say Persia, Babylon being a province in Persia, also Persian Empire taking over the Babylonian Empire. So a, a, a trip from Babylon to Jerusalem, that's what this is all about in chapter 7 and 8. Again and again, you're going to see, if you read through chapter 7 and 8, you would see a phrase occurring again and again. Phrases like, went up, they went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. They came to Jerusalem. It says, go up. You'll see phrases like, go with, journey, to bring, we journeyed, we came. Some 14 times in two chapters, you're going to see phrases like this. That's a lot of references to this subject. Clearly, the, the background to this, these two chapters are the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, spiritually speaking, there's, a, there's also a theme laid out in these two chapters mentioned six times, a phrase mentioned six times. Go with me to chapter 7, verse 6, a great phrase. I've always loved this phrase. <clears throat> chapter 7, verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given the king granted him all that he requested. Here's the phrase. Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Look at verse 9. It says at the end of that uh, verse, notice the phrase at the end of the verse, because the good hand of his God was upon him. Look at verse 28. Ezra's praying and he says that in the last sentence there, thus I was strengthened according to what? The hand of the Lord my God upon me. Look at chapter 8, verse 18. According to the good hand of our God, our God upon us. Look at verse 22. Look at the last sentence. The hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. Look at verse 31. It says uh, in, the middle of that fra- in the middle of that verse, the hand of our God was over us. Do you think the Lord may be trying to get our attention with this thought? Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you have to go through a couple chapters, a few chapters, maybe several chapters to get the point that is being made. Uh, and so I want to start off by talking about the time period we're in right now. We've talked about, we've come through six chapters. What time period? We're in, look at chapter 7, verse 1. It says there, the first few words, now after these things, it says, after these things, after what things? After the events of chapters 1 through 6, when we leave chapter 6 of Ezra and we go to chapter 7, we are crossing a great divide. I say that because there's some 57 years of lapse of time between those two chapters. Keep that in mind. And and there's another something that, that takes place, very important. The biblical account of the book of Esther falls within between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. So we've moved on in time and with the people that we met in the first six chapters, those people are no longer around. We're going to be introduced to new characters in the coming chapters. Now, what about the king? Well, the king is no longer King Darius, as we saw in chapter 6. There's a new king in town. His name, look at chapter 7, verse 1, is Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes I, to be precise. And he reigned from, and I know how you love dates, right? He reigned from, he reigned from 464 B.C., to 423 B.C. Chapters 7 and 8 are focused on one year of his reign only, the seventh year. That's 458 B.C. That's the time period, just so you'll know where we're at. And now the main character. The main character. We said we would be introduced to new characters from chapter 7 on. Uh, we've, come to, through, to, to, we've come through six chapters of this book over halfway. But have you noticed something odd has anybody noticed something strange about this book? 
in the first six chapters, it seems like something or someone is missing in all this time. You know, but that, that, that person, you know, you, we, we don't have to send an all point bulletin out to find this person because he, alas, arrives on the scene. This is none other than the person, the person of Ezra himself. The book is named after Ezra. He finally arrives on the scene. My question is, where have you been all this time, Ezra? We've been talking about the book of Ezra, right? Yeah, we haven't seen Ezra for six chapters. All of a sudden, he now appears, and not a moment too soon, I might add. We really can't blame him, though. He, he wasn't alive in the first six chapters. He just wasn't around. Sorry. So his name, though absent before this time, will now be mentioned about, I think, 25 times from chapter 7 on into the book of Nehemiah. You're going to see it again and again. And although the book never states who the author is of the book of Ezra, it never states it. It is, it is generally taken that Ezra wrote this book. He had such a strong reputation that even in the apocryphal book, not biblical book, not inspired book, the apocryphal book of 2nd Esdras, not Ezra, but Esdras. I think I have that on your note. Oh, there's notes somewhere. Of course, I forgot to pass them out. Hopefully, they're not sitting at my house right now. So I'll try to get them to you next time. I think I, think I brought them. Uh, anyway, in this apocryphal book, the, the, guys who, the Jews who wrote it said this, that they believed Ezra wrote the entire Old Testament. That's how important they thought Ezra was. Not only that, they thought he wrote seven, uh, 70 additional writings that were secretive. Of course, this is not inspired. It just shows you that the minds of the Jews thought Ezra was very important. In fact, they called him the second Moses. That's how important he was. Now, chapter 7 also signals the start of the second division of the book of Ezra. Two main divisions. The first six chapters deal with the rebuilding of the temple. I should have asked you that question. Rebuilding the temple. The, the rest of the chapters, 7 through 10, deal with the reformation of the people. The reformation of the people. Now, we're going to look at, take a, cl- a closer look at the person Ezra. Look at his genealogy. Let's read the first five verses together. It says here, I'll read, you listen, okay? It says, Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, there went up Ezra, son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, and a bunch of other people who sound like Aya, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Mariath, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abushua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. The genealogy is intended to show that Ezra descended from Aaron, the brother of Moses, the high priest. That's what this is all about, these first five verses. Not a complete genealogy, not intended to trace every single person in the line of Ezra all the way back to Aaron, not that. There's an omission of names here, not unusual in genealogies, but it's it's a selective genealogy. It says, when it says son of, by the way, it'll say son of several times. That often means descendant of, not necessarily the immediate son, just a descendant of. And uh, this is a selective genealogy, picking out certain key individuals in the line of Ezra. Ezra descended from Aaron. That's the point of this. There are, there's some names here you may recognize. Look at verse 2. Zadok, who was high priest during the reign of David. Look at verse 5. There's Phineas. You remember Phineas, the guy who was very zealous for the Lord in the time of Balaam. But the whole point of this is to show that Ezra was a true descendant of Aaron, the high priest. You say, so what? Who cares about that? Well, they cared about that. It was very important in that time to know that that was the case. A person couldn't just decide, I'm going to be the priest. 
They had to descend from the Aaronic priesthood in order to be qualified to lead the people spiritually. And besides that, when he got to Jerusalem, they needed to know this guy is the real deal. He's qualified to be the priest, to be what he is, what he's going to be. You had to meet God's qualifications. Now, throughout the centuries, God has always had qualifications for spiritual leadership, Old Testament, New Testament. Nothing's changed. He's always had qualifications. Today, those qualifications are found in primarily in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, certain other places. And those New Testament qualifications are to be taken as seriously as the one in, ones in Ezra's time for the Old Testament. Unfortunately, today, people don't, they don't see that's important. And so we have people who, you know, we have women who are preachers. And we have people who are not qualified at all to be in the ministry. And yet, we're to take this seriously. Ezra had the legal rights to be a priest. That's his genealogy. Now notice his profession in verse 6. This Ezra went up for Babylon. He was a scribe. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. He was a scribe. And there may be a double meaning here with the word scribe. First of all, it meant an official of the king, like a state secretary, like a royal private secretary to the king. He acted, Ezra did, in, the, in an official capacity. This is interesting to me. He acted in an official capacity for the king of Persia. Ezra did. This man of God. His boss was King Artaxerxes. And the commentators say something like this. He was a secretary on behalf of the religious institutions for Judah. Or he was secretary for Jewish affairs. We don't know exactly, but he acted in some official capacity. Isn't it fascinating in the Bible that there's men like Ezra and Daniel who worked for a pagan government and stood and had a great testimony like Ezra does and a reputation like Ezra does. But the word scribe also means this. It means one who studies, interprets, and copies the scripture. And that is where the real emphasis lies here in this chapter. He is a scribe of the law of Moses, it says, verse 6. And he took it very seriously. This was no haphazard deal for him because it says he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, skilled. He's been called a scribe of the highest order. He was, he was not satisfied with mediocrity. He wanted to pursue an excellence in the scriptures. Now, that's not the norm today, is it? That is not the norm today. There are many men out there who are in pulpits who are preaching, teaching this very word of God that Ezra taught, part of it at least, and they think that very little study is required in order to be a pastor or preacher, or very, virtually none. I keep having a neighbor, God bless him, he doesn't know any better. He keeps telling me, Mark, it's, I told him, I've got to study now. He says, it's already in your mind. It's in your mind. You don't have to do anything. No, it's not in my mind. It's gone. I've got to study it, okay? People think today they can slide by, right, get a message from God, put very little time in. That's all they need to do. As long as they have oratorical ability, you know, as long as they can entertain people and keep a crowd, and, and you know, the audience confirms this by their applause, right? They, they applaud them, they praise them, you guys are great, and they have no idea what's going on at all. But Ezra didn't see it that way. He saw to it that, you know, in his view, you had to give blood, sweat, and tears to the study of the scriptures. That's what you had to do. He didn't seek to merely get by with the minimum requirements, meet the minimum standard. He didn't do that. He shot for excellence. You know, for years, I worked at a company, and they had a sign, never forget the sign, hung from the ceiling, and it said, perfection, listen to this, perfection is our goal, uh, excellence will be tolerated. 
Perfection is our goal. Excellent. And I ever, I'd walk by that sign and I'd think, where is this being practiced at in this company? He saw such mediocrity all over the place, you know. But God's people, nevertheless, are to strive for excellence. That's, their, that's to be our goal. We're not here to be mediocre like everybody else. We're to pursue the scriptures with excellence. But we have a generation that is quite content to settle for mediocrity when it comes to the things of God. Content to do just a little, just to get by, that's it. You know, the Bible's not just another book. That's what it goes on to say. Look at verse 6. It says, the scriptures are that which the Lord God of Israel had given. God had given these scriptures. Ezra knew what he was dealing with. He was dealing with nothing less than the inspired word of God. That's what he was dealing with. And so he had this view that, man, I need to pursue this with excellence. The Lord God gave this book to the people of Israel. And he gave it to his people from from then on. Paul said it best in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is what? Inspired of God, right? All scripture is inspired of God. 2 Peter 2.21. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, right? God gave his word. Now, if you don't have a high view of scripture, you will not reverence it like you should. You will not give it the time it deserves. You'll, you'll, be, you'll shoot for mediocrity, not excellence. We won't regard it as Ezra did. Here's a question for all of us. Does our lack of devotion to the pursuit of the scriptures reflect our true view of them? Does our lack of devotion to the scriptures reflect what we really believe about them? Do we really believe in a high view of scripture? Don't we realize that what we have in our possession is the very words of God? We have the very words of God in our possession. That is, then how is it that we have such a ho-hum attitude toward them all the time, toward the scriptures? You know, a believer in inspiration has a high view of the scriptures. The king, it says in verse 6, as a result of all this, the king granted him all he requested. Why? It says, because the hand of the Lord is upon him. Now, we're not told what Ezra requested. We don't know exactly. It doesn't say, although... The rest of the chapter gives hints, probably has to do with the journey as they're, as they're taking. We don't know what he said, though. We'll get into that next week, the journey. Kings in the, by the way, kings in the Old Testament not always agreeable to the request that people made. Mike talked about that this morning with Nebuchadnezzar. They just soon slap you, in the, slap you down as look at you. you. You're requesting something from me? <laughs> Good luck on that. However, with Ezra... What he asked for, he got, not because he was persuasive necessarily, not because he was a good salesman necessarily, but because the good hand of his God was upon him. God was blessing him. That's what it says. What does it mean? What does it mean to, for the good hand of God to be upon a person? It means the Lord is bestowing favor to that person. He's blessing that person. As a result, his requests are granted. And God's hand upon Ezra is the key to chapter 7 and 8. Now notice next his journey. Verses 7 and 9, and we'll only spend a minute on this. Verse 7, some of the sons of Israel, some of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. From the first of the first, first, of the first month, he began to go up, Ezra did, from Babylon, and on the first of the fifth, fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. This is journey. His traveling companions are mentioned in verse 7, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, all those kind of people. His date of travel are mentioned in verses 8 and 9. His arrival is mentioned in verse 8 and 9. And as I said, the journey to Jerusalem is the background of chapter 7 and 8. These verses are going to play a, into next week. We're not going to talk about that this week, the journey. That will play into next week's message. But for tonight, 
I want to spend the rest of the time on the end of verse 9 and verse 10. And that is Ezra's commitment. Ezra's commitment. Again, look at verse 9 again. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon, uh, and he came to Jerusalem. Why? Because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Again, we have this phrase mentioned every time. It's a little bit different, similar phrase, though. And it says, the good hand of God is upon him. Therefore, the journey is going to be successful because God is blessing everything Ezra does. The reason for his success is because God's hand is on him, or better translated because here is probably according to. It's according to God's hand upon him. That's why. We saw the same successful outcome in verse 6, didn't we? God blessed him there with his request. In both cases, God is blessing him. In both cases, he's successful because God's hand is on him. God favors him. God blesses Ezra. God prospers Ezra. Remember Joseph? I think, can't help but think about him. God is blessing Ezra, but why? Why is God favoring him? Why is God's blessing him as he does? This is important for all of us to know. Now, we know this. We know in our circles we would answer this right away, that God providentially does what he does, right? He providentially leaves. We have seen this in Ezra already. The chapter 6, we talked about that, the providence of God again and again. Even leading, leading his people out of uh, Persia to come to Jerusalem the first, on the first uh, travel in chapter 1. He, let, he even worked through pagan kings like King Cyrus in chapter 1. You remember that? He stirred King Cyrus. All these things, God's providential. He does what he does. He doesn't need to explain why to us. And we know God raised up Ezra. We know this providentially, right? However, there is a little word in this verse 10 that gives away a great truth. And don't miss the word. That is the first word of verse 10. Look at it. It is the word for. That is a very important word. It is a connecting word. It connects the preceding phrase, because the good hand of God was upon him, with what follows in verse 10. Listen to this. The good hand of his God was upon Ezra for Ezra had set his heart to study, to practice, and to teach the law of the Lord. That's why the Lord blessed him as he did. Ezra decided, I'm going to be fully devoted to the Word of God. That's why God's blessing was upon him. He loved the Word of God. He lived it. He proclaimed it. He held it in high regard. And the fact of the matter is, the Lord is pleased with people who do this, who devote their lives, laymen or not, to the Word of God, to the pursuit of the Word of God. Doesn't Psalm 1 say, think about Psalm 1, doesn't it say that the person who meditates on the Scripture that takes delight in the law of the Lord, right, and meditates upon it, will be like what? A tree planted by the rivers of water. His leaf's not going to wither. And whatever he does is going to prosper, it says. Now, we run away from that, right? Whatever he does is going to prosper. Oh, prosperity gospel, we say. You're familiar with this, right? Some people here, we're in this kind of a church. It's not what this is about. It has nothing to do with prosperity gospel whatsoever. It does say it, though. Do we throw this phrase away? Oh, it doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. That's what it says. Why does it say that? Why does it say he's going to prosper people who are given their time to the word of God? It's because God sees that person is throwing his heart and his soul and his life into the word of God, the inspired word of God, and that is what the Lord wants. That's his will. And so he blesses these people. It's very simple. That's what it says. Now, never, ever, ever underestimate 
your connection, the connection that you have with the Word of God and the blessing of God upon your life. Don't ever underestimate that. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you're never going to face trials. I'm not saying you're going to be rich. I'm not saying you're going to have wealth. I'm not saying any of these things. I'm saying that God's going to bless you in the way he chooses, and he's going to use you. Yes, you're going to have difficulties. Ezra did. He had difficulties in chapter 8. But his blessing is upon those who treasure his word. That is what God says. He says it again and again. I don't know why we don't just accept it. Now, we're talking about Ezra's commitment to the word of God here. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 10 shows us what that looks like. It narrows it down, shows us what it looks like. So what does it mean to be a man of the word? Like G. Campbell Morgan. What does it mean to be a woman of the word? Or a, now we're not all G. Campbell Morgan. I realize that. We're not all pastors and preachers. I'm, not, I'm talking to everybody here. Everybody, okay? What does it mean to be a young person of the word? It means you're going to make four commitments in regard to the word. Four commitments. Number one, there will be the preparation of the heart. Verse 9. For Ezra has set his heart, very important, to study the law of the Lord. He had set his heart. In the Old Testament, the heart refers to the whole of one being. It's who the, the whole of one's being is who the person really is. And to set your heart means to fix it, to establish it in such a way that it's heading in a certain direction. It's heading toward a certain goal. Ezra made it his life's ambition to be a man of the word. He fixed his heart and said to himself, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what I'm going to be. By the grace of God, I'm going to be this. And he was. He devoted himself fully to that task. It wasn't just an academic exercise. It was a pursuit of the heart. It's a matter, I'll tell you, it's a matter of the heart first and foremost. His heart and soul were captivated by God's word. And so he said, he said a lifelong mission to pursue and propagate those same scriptures. That's what he did. The people of God, you know, think about it. The people God has used throughout the centuries have always been people of what? People committed fully to the word of God. Mike mentioned, you know, it was Stephen that mentioned Martin Luther this morning. When you think of Luther, some say that the most important thing Luther did was not even leave the Reformation. It was rather that he translated the Bible into German. It affected so many people because they had the Bible in their own language at that point. And again... I'm not talking about only pastors or great reformers like Martin Luther. Who's a Martin Luther here, right? I'm talking about everybody, all believers. Let me give you an illustration of history. I never heard this until this very week, strangely enough. In 1800, in Wales, a 15-year-old girl named Mary Jones. Anybody hear of Mary Jones? I didn't think so. She made a walk, walked for 26 miles barefooted, through the rugged terrain of northern Wales. Not an easy journey. 15 years old, by herself. You say, well, 26 miles. 26 miles, isn't that a marathon? 26 miles. She walked it, barefooted. <clears throat> Why did she do this? Well, we'll go back six years in her life. She decided at the age of nine, she wanted her very own Bible. She didn't have a Bible. It was hard to get a copy of the Bible where she lived out in the country. Uh, people didn't have Bibles necessarily, not many. She desperately wanted, she's, okay, how many people here are 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15? Anybody here that age? Well, that's amazing. Nobody here? Oh, okay, we have a couple that are that age. Okay, you look at those girls over there, 9 years of age. She decided she wanted a Bible and desperately wanted a Bible to read. 9 years of age? She would go once a week to a neighbor's house a couple miles away. She would walk two miles. To hear this neighbor read the Bible for a long period of time, once a week, she just wanted to hear it. 
She didn't have a Bible herself. So she decided she would save money to go buy a Bible. It took her six years to save the money up to buy a Bible. And when she got to be 15 years of age, she felt like she had enough money. She made this walk. She knew a reverend 26 miles away in the town of Bela in Wales, who his name was Reverend Thomas Charles, Calvinistic Methodist preacher, strangely enough. This guy provided Bibles for people. He sold Bibles. He was trying to get the Bibles out. He didn't have, you know, he wasn't rich, so he had to kind of sell them to get them out there. She, she made the journey to his house, 26 miles away, to buy a Bible. I don't know all the details of the story. Maybe you can look it up later. Um, it's a fascinating story. And then she walked 26 miles back home. Now, that's Ezra-like determination right there. That is a heart for the word right there. Mary Jones had a heart for the word. Well, the story spread. And people were inspired by this story. And Reverend Thomas Charles said, hey, he was one of the guys that said, this is one of the reasons why, let's start a Bible society to where we can get Bibles in the hands of people. And, and they, this is one of the major events that started at Mary Jones' Walk. In fact, you can go to Mary Jones' World today in Wales, and you can do this walk, apparently. But they started this Bible society called the British and Foreign Bible Society, which even Wilbur Wilberforce, the man who, wrote, who fought against slavery in England, he was part of this later on. That society, Bible society, is still in existence today, has been around for 200 years, and, and they've been in 200 countries translating the Bible, getting into the hands of the people. Tons of Bibles. Now, I don't know what they, how they are today, you know how this goes. However, look what happened as a result of this. This is what started this process off. Now, today, no one has to walk 26 miles to buy a Bible. We have to do that? We don't have to do that. We can come to church and probably get one for free. We're surrounded by Bibles of every kind, every shape, every size, every kind of study Bible, every kind of format, every kind of translation philosophy, you name it, we have it. We have it available to us. The problem is today is, today is that we don't, don't have a Bible. The problem is our heart. Are we committed to the Bible? Have we set our hearts toward a lifelong pursuit of the Scriptures? Have we done that? That's the problem today. Or has it been overshadowed by all kinds of trivial pursuits? We have a lot of trivial pursuits that we... Go after, right? That overshadow the scriptures. Second Chronicles 12, 14 gives a warning from the life of King Jeroboam. It says, King Jeroboam did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. That was the foundational problem in his life. He didn't do it. A commitment to the word starts with the heart. It always starts with the heart. If you're half-hearted about the Bible, this is where you need to start. Second commitment, the study of the word. The study of the word. Look at verse 10 again. Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Word translated study means to seek. King James translates, he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. That's exactly what it says. Ezra was seeking out the meaning of the word of God. It describes a careful search of the scriptures, carefully examining the scriptures to see what they say, to find out what it says. You know, Ezra would have been in favor of our modern Bible study method of observation, interpretation, uh, uh, translation, observation, interpretation, application. Observation, we ask questions of the text. What does it mean? Why is this here? Where is it happening? When is it happening? How, what, what's happening here? How is it happening? And then interpretation, what does it mean? Application, how does it apply to me? All these things. This is not just a hobby for us. This is a pursuit, a serious 
pursuit. The Lord is not pleased with people who are lazy when it comes to the scriptures. Not pleased at all. We need to be daily at this task. I'm indicting myself here too. We need to be daily at this task, not being lazy, meditating on the scriptures. This is a call to every single believer, none exempt, don't care who you are. You know, some may have more time than others, but everybody, every believer has some time to spend in the Word of God daily. Don't make that excuse. I don't have time. 2 Timothy 2.15, what does it say? Be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. As a workman, it says, who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's the, 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 qual- that's the, 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 what's laid, the standard laid down for us. Listen to those words, diligence, workman. Nothing lazy about this. This describes Ezra. And it should describe all of us. So we should study the word. Secondly, obey the word, verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law, Lord, and to practice it, literally to do it, is what it says. He set his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Ezra studied the word. Ezra did the word. You know, there are people today, you know there's people today called they're professional Bible scholars. They write commentaries. They're theological liberals, oftentimes. Oftentimes not even saved. They teach in secular universities. They teach for religion classes. God forbid you should take a religion class in a secular university. They teach in Christian colleges that are Christian in name only. They know the languages. They learn Hebrew. I've seen some of their commentaries. Aramaic, Greek, they know them back and forth. They're experts. They examine the words of the scripture. They give their opinion as the meaning of the scripture. However, there's one problem. They have no interest in doing what the scripture says. None. They don't even believe the scripture, oftentimes. They're hearers of the word, not doers of it. Studying the Bible is of little value if you're not also obeying the scriptures, if you, don't, if you don't follow it up with obedience. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. What did, when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he concludes with a very important application. Matthew 7, verse 24, Mike went over this. And it says there, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, Matthew 7, 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, actually literally does them, who, who does them, same word, do, does, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came. The winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The person who hears the word of God, takes it in, does what it says, he will build on solid ground. That's what Jesus said. That phrase, doing the word, that phrase had grown, and people knew what that phrase was. The Jews of, of the New Testament days had heard that phrase. It was in Jewish literature, doing the word. And so when James writes his epistle, in James chapter 1, 22, they, they knew this already. He says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. We have to do the word. We have to obey the word. You know, I gave this illustration. We're, we're going through James on Wednesday night. Um, of, of auditing a class. Who, who here has audited a class in college? <laughs> not many. Uh, we're not, Christians are not like those who audit a class, okay? In college... You can audit a class, which means 
you, you pay, I think, half price or something for the class. You sign up. You go into class. All you do is sit there and listen. This is, a, this is actually a great plan if you're lazy. You go in there and sit in there and listen. You don't have to take any tests. It's a beautiful thing, right? You don't have to take any notes. You don't have to do any assignments. In fact, you don't even have to show up and listen if you don't want to. You don't have to do anything at all. But the believer is not auditing the Christian life. We're not auditing this thing. We're not just here to hear the word and listen to it. We're here to do what it says, right? We're here to do what it says. That's how it should be. We're here to live in compliance with it. We're doers of the word, or should be. Finally, Ezra wanted to teach the word in verse 10. He wanted to study the law of the Lord, practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. That's what he did. He wanted to teach the Lord's statutes and ordinances. He didn't wait until he got to Israel either. He taught the word in Babylon first. That's where he taught it first because it says he was a skilled scribe when he was in Babylon. And he did that first there. Then he went to Israel and taught it there. He never, wherever he was, he taught it. That's what he did. By the way, wherever we're, you people talk, talk about, well, should I go to Africa or should I go to this country or that country? Look, here's the deal. Serve the Lord wherever you are. If you're in Tampa, serve the Lord here. If you're in Africa, serve the Lord there. That's, that's the bottom line to that. Ezra did that. He taught the law of the Lord, which is at least the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes that word, law of the Lord, means the entire Old Testament. Probably here, the first five books of the Bible, they were foundational to the life of Israel. By the way, they're foundational to the whole scripture, the first five books of the Bible. And teaching doesn't mean just he lectured them. It, means he, it does mean education. He educated them in the scriptures, but it also means he trained them. He trained them in the scriptures. Not, Ezra wasn't the kind of guy that would teach and then walk off and retire to his office, and that was the end of it. He trained people. He, he tried to get with people. We might call it discipleship today. We disciple people. Teaching is more than just a lecture. Teacher must be involved in the lives of the people he teaches. You know, you say, now I know what you're, some of you are thinking. Well, you say, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a preacher. Therefore, I don't have to teach anybody. However, are you a parent? If you're a parent, there's someone you need to teach. Who would that be? Your children, right? You, you, you therefore become a teacher by default. You say, well, I'm single. Uh, but there's no one. There's plenty of people that need to be discipled. Plenty. You should find someone to disciple that person. It must be somebody. There's got to be somebody you can share the word of God with. Somebody, anybody. Ezra blazed the trail for future scribal activity. He was the first among many. He set the standard. He's considered to be the first of men who was specialized in the study of the scriptures. He was a scholar. He studied. He proclaimed the scriptures. And that, that continued on through the New Testament, the scribes. You've read about the scribes in the New Testament. However, those guys were not like Ezra. They were like him. They got off track. They didn't have his heart. It was the problem. And so in Matthew 23... Listen, you can turn to Matthew 23, verses 1 to 3 if you want. I'll read it to you. In Matthew 23, Jesus talks about the scribes, and he talks about the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 1, and he says this. It says, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes, I want you to know something about the scribes. The scribes, Ezra was a scribe, a really good one, a really godly one. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They are now authoritative teachers of the law. Therefore, all they tell you, all they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. Listen to this statement. For they say and do not do. 
They say, they, they say, they preach, but they don't practice, right? They, tell, they say a lot of things about the scripture. They don't do what it says. That's just the opposite of Ezra 7.10. Ezra is my favorite character in the Bible. Ezra 7.10 has been my favorite verse in the Bible for years now. But I'll tell you what, it's very convicting. I look at it now and I think, why did I ever pick this verse? This is so beyond me. I've failed at this verse so many times. And I look at this verse and I say, man, this thing is so convicting because it's a very high standard. But by the grace of God, he wants we, we should pursue it, no matter how often we failed. He teach, Ezra shows us the way. He shows us that the word of God must be paramount in our lives. It must be first. It must, we must, our lives must revolve around it. I don't know about you, but I'm, fi- I'm glad Ezra finally showed up. It was worth the wait. It took him long enough, right? But he made it. Let me ask you a question as we close. Where do you stand in relation to the word of God? Think about yourself. Where do you stand... And not to put you on a guilt trip, but to encourage you. Where do you stand in relation to the Are you committed to it? Have you made a heart commitment? That's where it starts, a heart commitment to it. Have you made it a fixed rule of your life to pursue it? This is something I'm going to do by the grace of God. I'm going to do this thing. Not a New Year's resolution, a fixed rule of your life where you've established it. This is what I'm going to do. Do you take the time to read it and study it? Ezra being our guide here, our example, are you a doer of the word? Have you ever influenced anybody with its message? Anybody at all? I don't care. Anybody. Have you ever thought, I need to influence somebody with the scriptures? This is the responsibility and privilege laid upon all of God's people. Let's pray that God will enable us to be people who pursue his word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word tonight. Again, we are convicted by these kind of things. We see our our shortcomings in this area. Lord, give us grace to be people of the word. Give us grace to, to study your word, to find out what you say. This is your words that you gave, that you breathed out. We should be interested in knowing what they say. We should furthermore be interested in doing what they say. Give us grace to be doers of the word. Help us to teach the people that we are able to teach that are in our sphere of influence. Give us grace to do that. We pray we'll be people of the word that will love your word, live it, and do what it says, and honor you with it. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.